Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre based in Holy Trinity Brompton here in London. Jane Williams, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology, the Bible, in fact, just about everything. Welcome everyone to GodPod 85. And it's uh, very good to be here again for another Godpod recording. And we have Michael Lloyd. As usual, indeed. Well, as kind of usual. Exactly. And Jane Williams. Indeed. And myself, Graham Tomlin, the usual team, here for Godpod 85. But don't switch off. (laughs) No guests today. No guests at all. Nothing interesting today. (laughs) Yeah, we kind of like just talking amongst ourselves, don't we? We do. It's how it all started, isn't it? It's how it all started, how it will all end. (laughs) One day. That's an interesting view. Eschatological view. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Well, hopefully we've learned something ourselves along the way. Absolutely. Which is kind of what you do when you discuss theology as time goes on. that's, That's the hopeful outcome anyway that's yeah. why most of us who teach theology do teach theology because it's the best way to learn isn't it that's right it is godpod began many years ago when we um we were we were setting up a new theological college which has now grown a bit and um i think we, we were thinking about our own past experiences in theological education and thought one of the things we missed out was the chance to actually talk theology together because we we're so busy you know administering things and writing marking essays and writing books so we never actually got to have discussions about well, it you're busy writing books <laughs> we're busy reading the books you write <laughs> <laughs> so we thought we, 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 we it felt a bit self-indulgent to just sort of sit and have an hour just to talk theology so then we had this idea that yeah, an occasional person might want to listen in so that's kind of how godpod began but I, i've often it's often struck me how much i've learned through the process of discussing it rather than just disseminating ideas that you've already formed the, the ideas form as you talk yeah. well i always think when when I, when I speak in public that the, the bit i enjoy is the question and answers yeah. because i i know what i think <laughs> uh, but what actually is creative and stimulating is is hearing somebody else's angle and being forced to yeah. to think slightly afresh and from a different perspective and i've often found in writing books 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 that have been taught have been much better than the ones that haven't been taught because if you teach something, then people ask questions about mm. it. They they find the holes in your argument or, they, or the bits you haven't thought about, and they make you think about it. And that's what sort of discuss, discussion does. And um, it's often struck me as a really good way to do theology, just mm. by conversation. And I think that's, that's a, a different niche, isn't it? So you get lectures, you get sermons, you get books, but, but the conversational way of doing theology is, is different from any of those. Yeah, that's right. It has some yeah. strengths, it has some weaknesses, but, but it's, uh, it's got its place in the food chain, I think. So we're grateful to such listen- listeners as we have for helping our theological education. Thank you very much. Yes, exactly. both, of, both of you, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the, the listeners are rather an excuse to do this because it, it felt like less, slightly less self-indulgent that we were actually producing a podcast as a result of actually discussing. <laughs> anyway, there you go. Um, well, what we're going to do over the next few God Pods is um, a little bit of a, a bit of a series, and uh, the idea is to um, take a heresy of the month. We do a God Pod recording just about once a month, and um, the idea is to take a, um, one of the heresies in the Christian Church uh, in the past and um, just talk about it a little bit and to work out why it was a heresy, why it didn't work, and so on. Um, so that's what we're going to try and do over the next few God Pod recordings discover in which ways we are heretics yes we're going to start with tomlinism <laughs> that's far too complicated to <laughs> and um so i mean just to, to begin that whole um 
idea. But how do you understand heresy? What do, what do you think heresy is? I think one of the things about heresy is is both a diminution and a distortion of of truth. It's, it shuts things down, and usually the reason why the church says no to a heresy is not because it's trying to clamp down on you know, free speech and free thinking, but because it realizes that in some way this denudes the wonderful, glorious range of truth mm. into something smaller, into something mm. less liberating, um, something that doesn't stretch you and enlarge mm. you, but cramps you and mm. constrains you. And of course, nobody sets off to be a heretic. So heresies arise because people try out what they hope will be a solution to a particular theological issue. And then, mm. um, and then people hear, hear that solution and think, well, actually, no, it doesn't work. It doesn't do this and it doesn't do this. As Mike says, it closes things down mm. rather than mm. opening mm. things up. But I, but I think it is quite important to know that people don't set off, to dis- on the whole, to destroy the faith with mm. these things that become heresies. They set off to tidy things up. Yes, they're not usually, they're not, in fact, opponents no. of the yep. Christian faith. They usually they, arise they're, from they're, within. They arise from within, and, and, and their attempts, as Jane says, to, to explain something. And normally they've got, you can see why they do it. There's something to yeah. it. There's, yes, exactly. They're There's onto something, something yes. but they're missing other bits. And There's a phrase that, um, I think it was David Steinmetz, who was a professor at Yale, I think it was, of church history. He said that um, you have to feel the attraction of ideas that history has judged erroneous. Mm. Mm. It struck me as a very important idea and phrase. You have to kind of feel the attraction of heresy before you can really understand it. Because if it's obviously wrong, then it's discounted out of court and it doesn't really get debated. It's it's not really worth talking about. But heresies are, are almost always almost right. They have an attraction. They have a power about them. And you have to kind of get yourself into it to understand why it seemed such an attractive option for a while, but then go on beyond that to understand why ultimately it didn't work as a, as a solution of whatever particular problem. And how you can then build what is good from it into something that diffuses yeah. it of its limiting and distorting sure. tendencies. Yeah. But I suspect we will find, as we discuss these heresies, that um, actually very few Christian heresies disappear entirely. Yeah. Um, and that although we may not um, realise that, that what we're expressing has a particular label on it, as a matter of fact, um, as particularly perhaps the Christological, the, the, mm. the heresies around the person and work of Jesus Christ, um, do continue because they are um, trying to do something logical um, mm. with this very extraordinary thing that we claim that God becomes human in Jesus. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing about heresies to me, is that heresies, I think, are about identity. They're about trying to establish and explore the identity of, of Christian faith, or in fact of any particular set of beliefs. And it seems to me that any, any set of beliefs, any coherent set of beliefs, whether religious, political, philosophical, whatever, almost needs a concept of heresy. Otherwise, it has no identity. If every idea is acceptable, then nothing is acceptable. There's no real clear identity to this body of, of thought. So it seems to me that, for example, political parties need a sense of of heresy and you can see in sort of the history of politics that certain ideas say you know for example here in the UK within the the Labour Party for example which is a sort of left-wing party in in um, in uh, the UK back in the 70s 80s there was a kind of Trotskyist wing which eventually was 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 rejected as not an not a sort of uh, valid 
expression of the labor movement um it was going to like it but didn't belong in it and that was if you like a sort of secular understanding of, of heresy every every body of uh, of ideas of, of thought needs a sense of heresy to 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 say well, okay that's not us and that is us and it helps to create a sense of identity i think and of course christianity doesn't start as a body of ideas or thought it starts as yeah. mm. um trying to explain what has happened Mm. Um, in Jesus, mm. and that makes it even more complicated, doesn't it? Because you don't start with a, a, a basic framework that you can then yeah. test. It starts with this witness um, to God's extraordinary yeah. act, um, and 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 so lots of things had to be tried out um, mm. to to see how whether they fitted this um, this extraordinary thing or not. And and um, yes, you get this this whole concept of a um, what's the uh, name of the Greek robber um, Procrustes, the Procrustean yeah. bed. Mm. Uh, he was a, a very unpleasant Greek robber who had a, a small bed that he'd put people on, and anything that didn't fit, he'd lop off uh, the odd limb, <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, and it's become no, uh, the name for um, a system of thought that you try and fit something onto, and then if it doesn't fit, you lop bits mm. off. Now, mm. the problem with heresy is that they're Procrustean beds, they, mm. they cannot fit the whole glorious truth of the story and narrative of the person of Christ onto them. Um, and therefore you have to lop bits off. And that's the point at which the church mm. says, mm, we don't like lopping bits off. Yeah, I can see why a tall person like you would... Come to that particular yeah, yes, analogy. Would use that analogy, yeah, yes. 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 <laughs> yeah, we're not about to lop bits off you, Mike. <laughs> You'll be glad to know. That's good. Um, so anyway, our first heresy that we we're going to try and tackle today is... Um, uh, one of the early Christian Christological controversies, and I suppose, as Jane was saying, a lot of the early heresies were Christological. In other words, they were um, attempts to try to describe the person of Jesus Christ and how uh, and what has happened in the person of Jesus Christ, because this event took place where Jesus appears and the, his disciples and others around come to this recognition that he is in some sense divine. Um but he's also in some sense human. So how do those two fit together? How divine is he? Fully divine, partly divine, and so on. And so um, the first heresy we're going to look at today is um, the heresy that's become known as adoptionism. And uh, it's an idea, I suppose, particularly associated with a character from the early church called Paul of Samosata, um, who uh, as an advocate of a certain type of adoptionism. And there are various kinds of adoptionism in the early church. But uh, most of them um, suggest that Jesus Christ was born as an ordinary human being, just as uh, as we are, but um, was at a later stage, and various adoptionist theologies or Christologies differ on when. where and when. Was it at his, um, in, during his childhood? Was it, uh, very often at his baptism is often the, the, um, the time when that's, uh, uh, identified or possibly even on the cross or even in the, in the resurrection that it's at a later stage he was adopted as god's son and so when we talk about jesus as the son of god what we mean is that he is an ordinary human being like we are but who was adopted as god's son um and we can kind of understand that because we know how adoption works in in normal cultures so this was an idea that was quite popular in the second early third centuries but eventually was decided to be not a valid expression of Christian Christology, and the question is, why? 
And you can see its attractions, can't you? Because it's, it's truthful to the New Testament witness that Jesus was really born, mm. um, that he was a, a real human being. He exactly. ate, he wept, uh, he suffered. Um, so it, it, it's, it's plausible to begin with. Uh, it also means that you don't have to do um, complicated things about the nature of God. Mm. God, um, who was already known to be the one God of the people of Israel, um, his, uh, who, who interacted with human beings. Again, his nature remains unchanged. He just simply adopts mm. um, Jesus uh, in a very particular kind of way. And then also it has knock-on pastoral attractions for us because we are told that we are adopted to mm-hmm. um, and become the adopted uh, sisters and brothers of, of Jesus Christ. So you can you can see why they thought this is probably what we mean. Yeah, and there are some um, biblical there are passages that it kind of makes sense of because if you choose the baptism as the point at which uh, Jesus is adopted, the point at which a voice is heard to say, "You you are my son, yep. whom I love," mm. that's they would have said uh, a clear analogy a reference to uh, Psalm two um, where. Uh, it says, you are my son, today I have become your father. Uh, and so they said, there you go, this is where it happens. This is where the adoption takes place. This is the father owning, adopting the son. And it ties in with the, with the Old Testament passage. Which illustrates another aspect of heresy, that, it, that heresy always claims some kind of biblical foundation. You can always find a few biblical texts that actually give grounds for any heretical view, because actually... Most Christian theologians have worked from the Bible and have uh, constructed what eventually, or ideas that became heresies, usually arose out of a particular reading of certain biblical texts. And I suppose what the church does is to try to measure that against the whole of Scripture, the whole of the biblical witness, to see whether it makes sense of the whole thing. Um, so anyway, general point, back to adoptionism. <laughs> <laughs> and there are, um, there are phrases in Peter's speech at the beginning of Acts, which sound faintly adoptionist. Um, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power. This man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But God raised him up, having freed him from death. So it does very much look as though this is entirely the activity of God acting on an ordinary human being and then raising him up into something different. So that this passage could lend itself to the idea that it was at the resurrection that Jesus was adopted as the Son of God. Mm-hmm. But only, of course, if you stop there and don't... Read on <laughs> for the rest of what Peter says. Um, when when Peter is actually wanting to say, but this is um, this because God, it was because death couldn't hold on to Jesus. Now, mm. why could death not hold on to Jesus? If Jesus was just an ordinary mm. human being. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And there's also I mean, Romans one as well, which again could be read in an adoptionist way, where it says uh, that uh, this is the Son who. Um, through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Which again might imply that at resurrection, that's the point where he was declared to be son of God. Um, he became the son of God at the point of resurrection. Now, of course, you can read that in a different way to say the resurrection reveals in a, in a, in a unique and powerful way the identity of Christ as the son of God. But you can see how that could be read mm. in that way. So I guess what we've established so far is, 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 is the attractiveness of the idea uh, the way in which it makes sense of um, some bits of Christian experience, our experience of being adopted by by God as his sons and daughters. Um, it makes sense of some bits of scripture. It seems to claim some scriptural foundation. So, again, we shouldn't reject heresies too quickly. 
They have to feel the power of ideas that history is judged erroneous. And it avoids some of the really complicated things that uh, what we later came to be seen as a more orthodox approach involve you in, like Jesus being fully divine and fully human. How mm. does that work? I mean, mm. it, it avoids that kind of uh, difficulty mm. and complication. Mind you, heresies usually are simplifications. Yes. Yeah. As you say, they lock bits off, don't yes. they? Yes. Yeah. The reality is usually more complex yeah. than one um, ex- expects in advance rather than less. But, whereas heresies tend to make it simpler, I think. Yes. And, of course, the two, at least two really major things that adoptionism cannot um, help us understand is they can't help us understand God and they can't help us see Jesus as our saviour. Mm-hmm. Um, if um, so, it's just starting with helping us understand God. Um, if Jesus is simply an ordinary human being whom God at some point adopts, Jesus does not show us the nature of God mm. living um, on earth, um, and that's one of the, the most important things that Jesus claims, and that Christian um, theology claims about Jesus is that we don't just hear about God from Jesus. Mm. We meet God. Mm. Um, and that's a hugely significant thing to say. And that there is real encounter with God in mm. Christ. Yes. Because with adoptionism, it seems to me we don't get that. We get Jesus as adopted, if you like, into into God. But actually, we, we don't actually see the face of God in Christ. And therefore, we don't receive for ourselves the things that he speaks of. So when he says, your sins are forgiven... Mm. If that isn't God speaking, it it doesn't help us. Hmm. If it doesn't come with that authority, it doesn't embrace us. It doesn't do what it needs to do within us and for us. Hmm. Um, and it and it says, um, or it, it potentially says, um, God um, uh, authorizes Jesus's teaching and Jesus's um, work in relation to God, so that that's an aspect of God's character but not the whole of God's character. Mm. There might be other things, mm. yes. um, because if Jesus is not the full revelation mm. of God, we don't know very much about God. Mm. And, and then you can get a cigarette paper between Jesus and, exactly. and yeah. who God is, what yeah. he's like. Yes, And therefore God remains rather distant and unconnected with us. We are left guessing about what God is really like. Okay, we might know he adopted Jesus because he kind of likes Jesus, but we don't know God in the fullest sense of that word. He does not come close to us. He does not, the, the, the possibility of union between God and humanity is, is, is disallowed in that, which of course is one of the fruits of what became Orthodox Christology, this, this possibility that human nature might be sort of divinized. It might be become sort of imbued with divinity that, that just as happened in Christ uh, in a different way by grace rather than by nature, we too might become Godlike, and share in some in some way in his his nature, but that doesn't become possible with adoptionism. And nor does God come to meet us in Christ. He stays where he is and lets somebody else and do that, that. And that also, of course, then drives a, a wedge between um, uh, between God and creation. Yes. Um, uh, God, the Creator, um, is is again just somebody distant, uh, and creation is utterly. Um, separate and always will be from God. Um, whereas again, in in, a, the, in the Orthodox understanding of Christology, you see that the work of God the Creator and God the Redeemer are part of the same character mm. of the God who actually loves what he has made. Mm. Um, mm. So it isn't 
we, it isn't a mistake that we're human beings. <laughs> it isn't a, a, a great shame and, and failing that we have physical um, bodies. Mm. Um, it is actually perfectly possible to be just what we are meant to be in relation mm. to God mm. um, as created beings. And, <coughs> the, and the second thing, Jane, Jane, you said there were two, and, and the other one is the, um, encapsulating the word that Graham's just used, the word of grace. Mm. That The problem with adoptionism is that um, if God has adopted Jesus because he's good, then if we aren't, then why not? Mm. Uh, it, it, it's a way of saying we don't measure up and we never can, and uh, we, but you should because he can, so why can't you? Mm. Whereas if it is God himself coming to us um, in the person of Jesus, then we are accepted uh, as we are. It becomes a matter of grace mm. rather than a matter of... I think that's, I think that's right. And it's one of the there's a kind of strange connection between adoptionism and a sort of theology of works. It seems to me, or a, a, a soteriology of works. Yes. In other words, that you know, why that why did Jesus? Why did God adopt Jesus? Presumably because he was a particularly good person. He was a wonderful man. He's the best person who ever lived, and all of that. And so, so you get into the idea that that that's what God does. He chooses those who are good. Yes. But that is a problem for those of us who know ourselves not to be good, because we then think, well, if that's how you get saved, by being as good as you possibly can be, um, it ends up with a very strenuous kind of Christian life, a very anxiety-ridden Christian life, one where you're just constantly trying to impress God in some way, constantly trying to be good enough for God, which is... Oh, it's very despairing. Yeah, exactly. Discipleship. Yeah, feeling that you're never quite... Never never going to make it, never going to be there, never, never quite good enough. And so it's it, so the kind of grounds of God's choice, which presumably must be because of the goodness of of Christ, um, although it sounds quite hopeful, actually it ends up with something quite depressing, yes. in a way. And and if it isn't because He is good that mm. Jesus is adopted, mm. then you're introducing sin into the mm. yeah. family of God, or the or yeah. uh, the nature of God in some way. Whereas what the New Testament says, of course, is God was in Christ reconciling the world mm. to himself. And mm. Jesus tells all those parables about um, going out to seek the lost lamb, um, sweeping your floor till you find a lost coin. Mm. Yes. Um, it shows that the active person here is God, mm. not us. We don't have to earn anything. God mm. has come out to reach for us. Mm. So mm. something completely new is brought into this situation of our making. Mm. which would be hopeless if it was left entirely to us. And that's, that point is made all, all the sharper by the phrase the good shepherd. I mean, the, here is the, the person who comes after us, Christ who comes after us. But of course, who's the shepherd in the Old Testament? It's the, the Lord is my shepherd. Mm. It, it's it's mm. God. Uh, and the very phrase the good shepherd suggests mm. God himself coming after us, mm. coming to meet us yeah. in our messed upness. Lostness. The other thing I wonder whether it it doesn't quite answer effectively is, is the is the uniqueness of Jesus in the sense that if if God happened to choose Jesus Christ, then presumably he could have just chosen anyone. He might still choose someone. Um, there's a kind of randomness of God's choice there that he happened to light upon this particular person, which then raises the question: Well, why doesn't he choose? Someone else, you know, could not could someone else be as a revelation of God in exactly the same way as Jesus, uh, or in another way? So, in other words, it leaves open the possibility there might be another person 
whom God might choose at some point. Um, which again gives you back to, you know, do we actually see anything of God in Jesus Christ? Uh, is that is that the final revelation of God? You know, can we be sure that in Jesus Christ we see the exact image of God Himself? There's a kind of randomness about it. There's a uncertainty about it because God might just choose someone else. In which case, um, Jesus doesn't really give us much of a clue as to what God is like. And if there's no finality to the revelation of God in Christ, then how do we know that somebody else is? And therefore, how do we know what it looks like at all? Mm. What God mm. looks like at all? So what starts off as a, a neat solution that solved one or two problems actually then unravels everything. Um, nothing yeah. that we want to say about um, th- about yeah. the work of God in Christ makes sense anymore at all. But apart from that... Apart from that, it's it, great. It, 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 <laughs> <laughs> that is right, because it has unraveled. It's unraveled revelation. Yeah. It's unraveled salvation. It's unraveled the person of Jesus Christ and how much he reveals God to us. It's unraveled consolation in many ways. The, the fact that God comes after us and... Yeah. And it almost... It, it almost I think it almost kind of unravels the church as well in a funny kind of way because it, I suppose, again, a, a, a more orthodox Christology and, and soteriology or doctrine of salvation would say that you know, Christ is the Word incarnate. He's not the adopted Son of God. He is part of the eternal Trinity. Um, we are adopted. Uh, that is something we can say. Hmm. There is a proper adoptionist theology which is that we are adopted sons of the father we don't share his nature in the same way that christ does but we do we are invited into the family as adopted children um which says something very powerful about adoption uh, and the value of that uh, within wider society that's a whole other other debate but i guess that you know if the church is um yeah the, the point is the church is the adopted family of god adopted in christ precisely in christ not separately from him and I fear sometimes that adoptionist Christology, whereby God chooses Jesus at a particular random moment, and then we sort of somehow hope he might choose us as well, somehow separately from Jesus, because we've also been good a bit like Jesus has been, uh, separates us from Christ. It somehow means that we have a relationship with God which is not linked into Christ at all, that we end up being isolated individuals relating to God in our own separate way, rather than this body of people invited into the family of God in Christ himself which is what the church is. So in a kind of funny way, it begins to unravel the church as a, as a communal body of people in Christ together. Perhaps it wouldn't even be Christian at all in that sense. Christ mm. happens to do it and we happen to do it. Yeah. And, and I think this is one of the reasons why uh, the doctrine of the virgin conception is so, so important, because it actually says right from the start, right from the moment of conception, uh, Jesus was... Mm. Uh, was uh, was divine as well as human, fully divine as well as fully human. Um, and that seems to me to be uh, a way of saying you cannot get a cigarette paper between mm. the, the Father and the Son, between the divinity and the humanity. Mm. Uh, they are constantly uh, and forever, from that moment onwards, um, united in the person of, of, of Jesus. Mm. And, and that's why the church always thinks of the Annunciation as the beginning of the new world, the beginning of the new creation, God beginning to put things right. Yep. And that's why there are so many pictures of it all the way around, you know, Italy. 
Mm. Yeah, I remember my wife getting very kind of fed up with <laughs> yet another annunciation <laughs> picture. But that's what it's saying. It's saying, mm. look, this is where it begins. This is where the world having gone wrong, it mm. begins to be put right because God has taken flesh, taken and become part of creation uh, in, in a quite a unique and extraordinary way. Very good. Well, there is adoptionism, a little canter around the attractions and, and pitfalls um, of adoptionist we, Christology. Exactly. We basically want to say, don't do it. Yeah. Don't, don't, go try, don't try this at home. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, talking of heresies, though, just before we um, sign off, Jane, I noticed that you're using an electronic Bible. Now, I would have thought the Jane of old would have considered that to be a heresy. Yeah, well, not a heresy, but it's true that I am using an electronic Bible. Jane. Um, and I, I can only excuse myself by saying that I find it very convenient to carry around because, of course, one never wants to be separated from one's Bible. So. No, that's very true. Yes. It does fit in my handbag. So does a pocket Bible. Yeah, it's but a bit my slimmer, eyesight though. won't cope with that anymore. Whereas <laughs> I can make this one bigger. <laughs> Anyway, um, it's also e easier to find texts in the middle of God pods when you want to look them up. It's very good. Uh, well, there is um, adoptionism. We will be back again with another heresy before too long. Um, <laughs> Either intentionally or unintentionally. <laughs> so um, uh, thank you for joining us. If you've been listening to this God pod, so it's goodbye from me, Graham. And it's goodbye from me, Michael. And also from me, Jane. Goodbye. Bye. That was God pod a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.